0: My name's Nick Sawyer and welcome to the Swap podcast where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. As issues go they don't get much bigger than climate change and the European Union has gone further than most in putting a legislative and regulatory framework in place to reduce emissions and encourage the shift to a green economy. The European Commission has been at the heart of this work, developing a package of measures to enable a reduction in net greenhouse emissions by at least 55% by 2030 versus 1990 levels and to drive investment to more sustainable businesses and technologies. But that's not all the EC has on its plate. The Commission is shortly expected to publish proposals to implement the final Basel III measures, which include the fundamental review of the trading book, A piece of legislation that will fundamentally overhaul how banks calculate capital for market risk. Work is also continuing to decouple the EU from the City of London, notably through an initiative to encourage EU institutions to reduce their exposures to UK clearinghouses ahead of the end of a temporary equivalence determination in mid 2022. And all of this while the EC continues to further build the foundations for a single market for capital via the Capital Markets Union. Here with me is, is the CEO, Scott O'Malia. And Scott, these are big, big
1: issues. Without a doubt, they're huge issues. On climate change, the EU has committed to becoming climate neutral by 2050. That's going to involve trillions of dollars of capital to invest in the necessary technology and infrastructure. So financial markets, and derivatives in particular, are going to play a critical role. To support this shift and monitor progress, regulators across the globe have been looking closely at their rule books. And the EC has been leading the way here, introducing a new taxonomy and sustainability reporting proposals, among other things. Of course, for ESG-related markets to flourish, you also need robust documentation and standards. And that's where ISDA has been focusing its efforts.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to climate change and sustainable finance a little later. But we're also expecting the EC to publish its rules to implement the final Basel III
1: measures shortly, which is another important topic, of course. Of course it is. That's where the money is. The FRTB will introduce some big changes on how banks calculate market risk, capital, including a greater reliance on standardized approaches. The question is how closely will the EU rules mirror the Basel standards and whether there are any divergences to account for the specificities of the EU banking system. In September, 25 EU central banks wrote to the EC calling for the EU to stick to the Basel III agreement. So it'll be interesting to see where this one ends up.
0: Yeah, it certainly will. And our guest today is ideally placed to talk about how the EC is approaching these issues.
1: That's right. I'll be speaking with Sean Berrigan, Director General of DG Financial Stability, Financial Services and Capital Markets Union at the EC. DG FISMA is the EC department responsible for EU policy on banking, finance. So it's going to be fantastic, and hopefully enlightening conversation. I'm sure it will. So why don't you take it away? Sean, Thanks for joining us on The Swap. I'd like to start by talking about the development of ESG-related financing, investment and hedging markets. The EU is blazing a path here with a variety of initiatives to encourage the transition to a greener economy. Why is the financial sector so important in meeting the EU's emissions reduction targets and what role can derivatives play in this market? Well,
2: thanks, Scott. Uh, This is a really important question because it's a really important issue for us here in the Commission. I mean, what we've known from the outset is that the cost of the transition to our ESG objectives is going to be massive. We're talking about 350 billion euros of additional investment per year. And this, of course, is well beyond what is provided and can be provided by the public sector. So there's going to have to be a private sector involvement here. So That's why it's important that we energize, let's say, the financial markets to provide the capital that, we all need to get to our target. Now, we started this uh, sustainable finance journey in earnest around 2018 with the three building blocks we put in place. That was the taxonomy, which is the, the definition of what is green, the classification system. We put in place and are putting in place now a disclosure regime, which will be based on that taxonomy. And then we'll have as the last part, a set of instruments, standards, labels, etc., benchmark. benchmarks. That will allow the investor to navigate the market more and more easily and more safely to ensure that what he or she wants to do in terms of green investment is delivered in the end. So with these three tools, which are not unusual tools for a market, we hope to, as I said, facilitate the flow of private capital to sustainable uh, investment. So this is why I think the financial sector is so important what role can derivatives markets play in that? Well, I think, as I said, we're not inventing a new financial market here, and we're not inventing new roles for participants in markets. So I'm hoping that the derivative market can play the role it plays in other markets, and that is allowing participants in this market to hedge their exposure to ESG assets. I think also derivatives kind of, they play an important role in facilitating price discovery and fostering greater market transparency. So I think it'll also contribute to you know, establishing the market price in an area which is relatively new. And I think that enable these investors better to manage their risks. So all in all, we're asking the financial system to play its normal role, but to play it in facilitating the flow of investment to these more sustainable activities.
1: You probably have seen some of ISDA's recent papers on this. We're unpacking all of these issues around long-term financing, uh, transition to more sustainable financing. And we, too, also have uh, trying to work on standards, definitions, disclosures, something that's quite familiar to us in terms of legal definitions and documentation. But can you expound a little bit more on the standards and definitions, best practices, and how that's going to lead to growth in this market? And frankly, maybe talk about the EU's leadership role here, because you're kind of trailblazing, as it were. So maybe how you've come to this position in the first place.
2: Yes. Well, as I said earlier, I mean, we have these three building blocks. So we have a taxonomy, which is the classification system, a disclosure regime, and a set of instruments. This all sounds very sort of straightforward, but the taxonomy is a complex document. It's a science-based document for the very good reason that it needs to be objective and needs to be you know, seen as a credible basis for the definition of green, which means all that is built on top of it, disclosure regimes and all of these labels, etc., will all themselves need to hopefully uh, facilitate the investor in managing what is a, is a complex taxonomy, a complex definition set. So standards will be really important because you, know, you can encourage the allocation of capital via a disclosure regime, but I think you need to say disclosure of what. I'd like to believe that you could leave this to the market. and I know some believe you should leave it to the market to decide based on its own interactions, what is disclosed. But our fear there is that if we leave it only to the market, the market will, of course, lead to definitions of green, but there may be many of them, and some of them may be quite divergent from others. And that's not an environment where we think you will get an efficient outcome in terms of capital allocation or a safe outcome in terms of greenwashing risk, etc. So standards for us, particularly around the disclosure space, are going to be very, very important. We have also been quite ambitious in what we want to achieve in terms of standards. So our standards for disclosure will cover the full ESG range and it will be based on double materiality. They will also, by the way, be audited. They will also be digitalized. So there'll, there'll be a, quite a modern set of standards. We are aware that there is an international effort to establish a global standard. We are fully behind that. Uh, this is probably going to be built around the TCFD principles, which we have already embodied, by the way, into ours, but will always, at least at the beginning, deal with single materiality, which could be an issue for us because we do not see the logic in just looking at outside-in risk and not looking at inside-out risk. I mean, I always draw the analogy here between credit risk. We ask banks to not only provision for possible credit losses, but to do proper credit risk assessment before they make those uh, that credit allocation. So it seems to us a logical analogy that you don't just ask institutions to manage their outside-in risk coming from climate, but you ask them to manage the risks they may be creating for themselves. So that is why we are very keen on a set of not just convergence standards, but ambitious standards that are consistent with the 2050 objectives. So all for convergence, but not for convergence sake. They really have to be linked to the 2050 our objectives. And I think if we don't have those standards, as I said, and we leave it to the market to find its way, it's going to be more costly for market participants because they'll have to deal with a confusing set of definitions. I think it'll be a less efficient outcome because capital will not be allocated efficiently to where we want it to go. And it'll be a less safe outcome, I think, for the investors because they will face a situation where their intermediary may well define for them what green is.
1: Terrific. Now, you mentioned in there about aligning interest and aligning the behavior. Certainly, pricing of some of these behaviors is going to be important. ISDA recently published a report showing that the forthcoming fundamental review of the trading book would lead to a disproportionately high capital requirement for carbon certificates. And these are the compliance certificates that the EU has used for over a decade. Now, obviously, disproportionately high capital requirements could potentially deter banks from participating in this market. Is this a concern of yours? And will you guys reconsider that a little bit?
2: Yeah, well, let me start by saying that, you know, we are fully cognizant of the the role that banks are going to play, particularly in the EU, because we remain a bank-dependent economy. And much as I have ambitions for CMU, I do not see these as coming in the very near term. So we remain very cognizant of the role banks play in the economy and the role we expect them to play in the transition to, towards the ESG objectives. So also, we are you know, always looking at ways in which we can help the financial sector to help us. So as you saw in the recent sustainable finance strategy, you know, we are, again, looking at the prudential framework, particularly in the context of the banking package that's coming to see to what extent there are things we can do to facilitate the financial sector in facilitating our achievements of objectives. Part of that package, of course, is the FRTB implementation. We have been, in that context, in particular, analysing the impact of the Basel III standards on the EU banking system. So we've engaged extensively with you all. I think, in that context, we continue to engage with you. And I think we've emphasised on several occasions that you know this is a key strategic objective for us, ESG, and therefore you know we are giving you know without giving you sneak previews and. I cannot give you more than that since we're coming close to the adoption and I don't want to prejudice the position of the college. But all I can tell you is we have given and continue to give careful consideration to those kinds of issues to ensure that the package you know, reflects the wider objectives that we have in mind.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Staying on the topic of capital, the EC is expected to publish its rules to implement the final Basel III measures in October, kind of what you have just referred to. Ahead of that, 25 European central banks recently sent a letter to the EC calling for full, timely and consistent implementation of Basel III standards in the EU. What approach will the EU take here or the European Commission take here? And do you anticipate any divergences to account for the specificities of the EU banking system, which you previously referenced?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think we have been clear all along that we are going to implement the, the Basel reform along the the conditions that have been asked so on a timely consistent and faithful basis we have also been clear that we will meet the other requirement of the Basel implementation which is not to result in a very significant increase in capital requirement and our own requirement then that we reflect the specific features of the EU banking system because as I don't need to remind you you know we apply the Basel reform rather differently to other parts of the world. And in particular, we apply it to the wider universe of banks. And that means we have to address certain specific features of the system. So we will implement Basel faithfully, but we will also do so in a way that we take account of the EU specificities as we've done in the past. And we are comfortable with that because we're always able to justify these specificities in respect of the Basel principle that we sign up with. So I think, we have received this letter. It's uh, cognizant of the views of those who signed the letter, but it was always our intention to implement Basel on a consistent, timely, and faithful way.
1: I think I'd like to uh, change tack here and look at the future state of financial markets in the post Brexit environment. The EC has stated that EU market participants should reduce their exposure to UK CCPs ahead of the end of the temporary equivalence period in mid 2022. As an organization, ISDA has always favored a path that is the least disruptive as possible. The bottom line is that we'd like to ensure that users have choice in their clearing services and that we don't increase risk for either market participants or the overall financial system. What is your outlook on all of this and how do you anticipate this playing out?
2: I think I need to start with a statement you've heard me made many times before, that for us, Brexit was the fragmenting event. So any reaction we make to Brexit is not the fragmenting event, okay? So this needs to be clear from the outset. On the other hand, you know, we were very clear together with the ECB and the Bank of England and Her Majesty's Treasury very early on that we would not create financial stability risk. And one of the areas that we identified as a potential source of financial stability risk, if we did not manage the Brexit fragmentation effects, was central clearing. So we have granted as you know equivalence in this one area leaving apart the specific Irish equivalence. This is the only area where we have granted equivalence in recognition of that specific financial stability risk. What I want to say then is that you know we have identified and the commission has been open about this that we have identified the fact that post Brexit we will be very reliant on external provision of services not just from the UK, but also from the US in this field of central clearing, more so than in many other areas of the financial system. And we have to ask the question whether or not this is a comfortable position for the union to be in, in a sort of medium long-term perspective. It's not that we are suggesting that those who are supervising these infrastructures will not supervise them well, that that's not the issue. The issue is just from a strategic perspective, does it make sense? For a very large economic area like ours to be so reliant on external provision of this particular service. And this is a discussion that's not confined to financial sector. I mean, post-pandemic, we're having very similar discussions about, and you saw in the State of the Union address, that we're also interested in our so-called tech sovereignty and our reliance on external supply for chips, for example. So this is part of a broader discussion about Europe's kind of strategic autonomy. So the Commission has been clear that we see this as an uncomfortable position, but we are also clear we're going to be responsible about it. So we have set up a working group. That working group has looked at what is involved in terms of rebalancing, what it means to rebalance, how long it would take to rebalance, how you would do it. All those things are under discussion, and we continue to work on that. So there will be no sudden movements that are going to sort of destabilize the system. We have been very clear we're not going to do that. We're going to do it in a responsible way. But you know, we remain convinced that you know, in a strategic perspective, there is a vulnerability for Europe to be reliant, so reliant on an external supply with no domestic alternative. And just to conclude, for those who say, but the US has more risk than you in UK swap markets, they do have more absolute risk but proportionately they're much less because they have Chicago. And if something goes wrong for whatever reason, they can they can use Chicago. If something goes wrong for us, I'm afraid and um, we would not have something domestic to fall back on. So I know for those in the market, these kind of strategic arguments are perhaps less resonant because in the market your job is to focus on the bottom line and possible fragmentation is a problem for you in that respect. But you must also understand that You know, our job is a bit more than the bottom line. We have to look at these strategic considerations as well. But we look at them in a responsible, serious manner. But we remain convinced that, you know, in a strategic context, this is a vulnerability for the EU.
1: Well, thank you for that. I'd like to switch course a little bit, talk about some of the regulatory reforms on the Commission's agenda, and specifically get your thoughts on how the EU is approaching the review of the MIFID II and MIFIR work. What are the goals and how would you characterize their current status?
2: Here, you know, as you know, the Mifid here has been referred to by, I think it was my predecessor, Olivier Gerson, We always refer to as a cathedral of legislation. And it's a big piece of legislation. And we have actually approached it by slicing it into sort of three broad parts. Part of the reform is already there because we undertook it as part of the response to the COVID crisis, so the capital markets recovery package. Where we focus a lot on information provision and access to markets. So we did it together with Prospectus. So that was taken care of there. The second part we're going to look at is about market functioning, in particular, and market infrastructure. And then the third part will be about investor protection. And that will come later next year as part of a broader discussion about the entire investment protection field, particularly for the retail client. So this. Particular part of the review that is coming now is focused on the functioning of market infrastructure. And we tend to agree with ISDA, by the way, that we don't need to completely overhaul what we have here. The framework is by and large okay, but we are thinking of creating in one particular area this idea of a consolidated tape that will aggregate all core market data and that would make our markets more efficient by responding to the fragmentation that exists today. So we would hope that this tape will generate reliable data for all transactions executed anywhere in the union on a single screen for equity bonds, as well as for some standardised derivatives, by the way. For for these strategic instruments, that will include the euro-denominated derivatives based on the new risk-free rates. And the tape, I think, will contribute to increased transparency here because dealers will have to report their transactions to the tape, whether they trade over the counter or on a platform. And all of this, we think, would foster, by the way, the derivative product quite a bit. So we now have to ensure that this tape emerges. So we will have to pay particular attention to core market data and its quality. So this means we look at the need to streamline the transparency regime, reinforce data quality of OTC transactions, all that. So we are aware that it's not just about providing the core data, it's ensuring that the core data actually uh, deliver what, what we want it to do. So in that sense, we'll also have to take account of some of the derivative market specificities. And I know, I think, and I'm hoping we can count on Isdes here, your expertise in this field, to sort of help us to identify those instruments uh, going forward.
1: Well, we'd certainly be willing to lend our contribution. We know the CFTC right now has already begun its review and proposals. We'd like to see those lined up. And I guess with regard to the consolidated tape, making sure we have the right product identifiers is pretty important, as you kind of alluded to there. And unfortunately, the ISINs, these individual identifiers, don't lend themselves to a non-standard product, perfectly reasonable for bonds or for equities. But when you have interest rate products, for example, built off a curve, they're not as useful and as, as informative. And... I think we could probably help you identify something that is completely transparent, useful, and it will inform the markets. There's nothing to hide here. We want to comply with the rules, but we probably uh, have some ideas about how we can make that function much easier. So we'll be glad to follow up with you on that.
2: I mean, Just to come back, I mean, we, we would certainly agree. So there's no disagreement here. It's not just about providing a tape. It's about providing reliable information on the tape. We know and we've heard that there's an issue around the instrument identification, in your particular case, ISINs. So we will, as I said, be relying, you know know that we're fairly open to help in these matters. So we will be relying on you to kind of help us in in that field, for sure. Terrific.
1: Now, you mentioned Capital Markets Union earlier, and with a focus on enhancing the role of the euro as a reserve currency. Given Brexit and the COVID pandemic, is this still the same, have the same level of priority for the Commission?
2: If anything, it has a higher level of priority. I mean, as I've always said, just mechanically, if you take the UK out of the capital markets that were there before Brexit, you are left with a much smaller, less developed capital market. Does this mean that we're sort of going to assume we can never access the UK market again? Of course not. We will continue. This is a global financial centre on our doorstep. We're going to remain actively engaged with that. But we do, I think have to now focus on the development of the local market partly for strategic reasons as i said before we you know our market now looks a little undersized compared to our economy but also because in any case CMU needs to reach all parts of the union and one of the problems we had with earlier efforts to work on capital market integration was it was very difficult to sell market integration which was you know based on large develop markets to those parts of Europe where you know the issue was not about CCPs, it was about, you know, venture capital and business angels and those kinds of things. So we need, I think, and we have shifted a little bit the focus from integration more towards development. That has been interpreted by some as a sort of protectionist move. This is not the case. This is just reflecting the reality of post Brexit capital markets in the EU. The balance is now not so much about extending what we have to other parts but also building in those parts what doesn't exist and in particular creating links and channels from less developed markets towards the more developed infrastructures. We, we want to try to avoid a situation where each member state tries to create its own ecosystem only to find that an ecosystem has to be then plugged into a larger ecosystem. So first of all there's deadweight cost and worse than that Sometimes they don't click in all that well, and uh, we just create the sort of inefficiencies we're trying to avoid. So it's about developing, but developing with a view to integrating for going forward. So I think, you know, the answer to your question is it's more important now than it was before. It's more important that we have both integration and a development focus. And then the other way in which we have kind of changed focus in the project is, of course, focusing more on retail. Because we accept that up to now, we have mainly focused on the supply side of the market. So what is is the market able to offer? But of course, you cannot create a market unless you have a demand side as well. And our demand side is smaller than other markets. And when you look at the US market, it is about demand as much as supply. So we will try to build demand as well. But that implies certain, certain requirements if we are to extend the market, particularly into the retail space.
1: Terrific. Now, I'd like to finish up briefly touching on a new asset class and much the way we've talked about ESG at the beginning of the podcast. This, too, has you know, a huge enthusiasm, particularly at the retail level. So where do crypto assets fit into the EU's and the Commission's regulatory agenda? The Basel Committee recently published a consultation on the preliminary proposals for the prudential treatment of bank crypto asset exposures. What are your thoughts on the regulatory and capital treatment of these instruments?
2: I mean, this is a very interesting question because the reality is the EU is, is somewhat behind other parts of the world in the crypto-asset space. We're not that part of the world which is most affected by the crypto-asset space yet, although as usual you know, it will come to us like it has come to others. But we are in fact somewhat ahead of other parts of the world in regulatory approaches because we have already put two proposals on the table, the so-called Mika and Dora, dealing with the market in crypto assets and also dealing with operational risk relating to the space but more generally as well so we are conscious that in a sense we're a little bit of the guinea pig here so we have taken the fsp principles as they have been developed so far and embedded them into the regulatory proposals that we have made and we're very close to getting agreement of member states on that proposal and then to begin the process uh, of actually you know the famous trilogue the negotiations with the Parliament. What are we trying to do in the EU? Well, our motivation in regulation is the standard one. So we see a lot of benefit from innovation. So we want to be pro-innovation. But we know that you can't just be pro-innovation unless you take care of the risks. You're just setting yourself up for a problem, which will probably destroy the market in the long term. So if you want this market to prosper, we have to be pro-innovation, but also regulate the risk side besides it. Then you have a sustainable model. So we are following the standard approach, and I see in the US, I mean, Gary Gensler is making rather similar statements to what I'm making here. But we have, of course, an additional interest, and that is to do with the single market aspect. Because one of the reasons, probably the reason, why we are behind other parts of the world is not because we don't have good ideas. We have lots of good ideas. It's that we don't have scale. We don't have scalable opportunities because these good ideas are very often constrained by very small domestic markets. And if we can facilitate the development of those good ideas based on the single market, which is, of course, bigger than any of these markets that we are competing with in many respects, then that will allow the EU to catch up. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to leverage the scale of a single market, capture innovation, but at the same time, Take care of the risks so that the model is sustainable, and we don't have a bubble, which not only cause a loss of, of course, economic loss, but could actually damage, you know, interest in this area of crypto assets, which we see as important. But there are important risks attached to it, and we have to manage them.
1: Well, best of luck. I think everybody's trying to figure out the appropriate balance on that on that question. Thank you. Well, I'd like to end the podcast by finding out a little bit more about our guests. Maybe I should do this at the front of the podcast, but we always reserve it for the end. How did you end up as Director General of DG FISMA and was working in the public sector always your plan?
2: Well, I'd like to say if you hang around long enough, they just have to promote you. So they basically, I've been doing the job here. I've been in this field for 20-something years. I think I probably started working in this field around 2000 with the Giovanini reports. That was my first introduction to people Tell me I should, I'm amazed that I stayed since I started in the plumbing and very often that's not the most attractive part. But I found the plumbing very interesting and then graduated to the above ground parts of the market as well. So I think, you know, I have always found finance fascinating and I particularly like it because it's an area where you never know Everything. Every day I find I learn something new. It's such a specialized set of issues. And I probably shouldn't spend so much time now, but I still enjoy talking to the experts I have about the technicalities. So it's just something I've never kind of lost interest in the sector. I've always found it interesting and I find it still interesting. Was I always a public sector? Yes, I suppose. I'm educated based on public scholarships. So I'm a sort of semi state product on that basis. And public policy has always kind of been my preferred interest. It's just that part of the world where you get this sort of breadth of subjects that you really can't get, I think, in most private sector jobs, where, as I said, the sector is quite specialized. I'm always amazed by how specialized, how knowledgeable people in the private sector are about their particular field. But I'm also always amazed that when I change subjects, subject, sometimes They just look at me and say, I can't go there, (laughs) but I can. So I think if you take that, and I think also, as I said, I'm a state-sponsored product. I feel I maybe should give something back on this because without state, I certainly would never have got to college and would never have got the opportunity to do any of this. So there's some of that public policy sort of, um, I suppose, vocation there as well.
1: Well, Sean, that's all we have time for. I feel we've only scratched the surface on your extensive and diverse EC priorities, but we're out of time. So let me thank you again for joining the podcast in your time today.
2: Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. And I hope we have a chance to speak again soon. Thank
0: you. Well, we said at the start that the EC is working on some big, big issues, and that discussion really emphasized that fact. Clearly, sustainable finance and ESG will continue to be a focus, and we heard about some of the EC's priorities in this space. But how does ISDA fit into this?
1: Well, it fits in in quite a few ways, Nick. A critical component of successful transition to a green economy will be the development of transparent and resilient carbon markets and an effective price on carbon. ISDA is actively involved in the Task Force on Scaling Carbon Markets, which is developing a blueprint for voluntary carbon market trading. His focus, in particular, is to ensure that carbon credits have the necessary governance and legal framework to bolster trading and liquidity on voluntary carbon credits. In particular, we're looking at possible documentation solutions for this market. In fact, we've already published a variety of templates to support the trading of emissions and certain types of environmental derivatives. As this market grows, we will work with our members to identify other areas where standard terms, documents, and definitions are necessary. We're also working to develop best practices and standards, something that Sean touched on, to ensure that the market for ESG-related transactions is consistent, transparent, and credible, and to the point of making sure that there is no greenwashing here. We published several papers looking at all aspects of this market, including a set of best practice guidelines for drafting key performance indicators and sustainability-linked derivatives. All of this is fascinating and interesting stuff, Nick. We're going to have some more papers coming out on legal documentation. We're going to probably have some more papers coming out on trading uh, green products as well. So something that our members can look forward to reading.
0: It certainly is fascinating. And the development of ESG markets is a topic we're certainly going to be coming back to here on this podcast as well. But we're out of time for now. There's lots going on for the remainder of this year. So please do keep an eye open for our forthcoming episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.bisda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.